All right, folks, we're ready to get started. Welcome to those that are joining us live uh, this evening online or maybe watching this with us uh, sometime later in the week. However you are uh, joining us, we're glad that you're here, particularly those in the room. Thanks for uh, being here tonight. Uh, it was kind of a first good day of the year weather-wise, and so I know there may be other things you could have been doing today. So let me pray for us, and uh, we'll uh, get started. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us, for the grace that you have shown us, um, uh, particularly in sending Jesus uh, so that we may have life. Um, God, we, uh, we thank you for the life that you give us in Christ. Now, we pray, God, that we would... Uh, equip one another to walk in him because that's our goal is to be equipped for the work of ministry and to be equipped for uh, Christ likeness uh, during these uh, Wednesday night sessions so God would you help us with that uh, allow the word of God to encourage us uh, in ways that we uh, are being like Christ and help help your word God uh, to cut us in ways where we still uh, are practicing our old nature, we pray. Uh, would your word challenge and change us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing in our biblical worldview uh, semester. And over the last couple of weeks, I've dealt with some relatively touchy subjects. Um, the first was the subject of life and abortion. And we talked about um, what the Bible's position of life was uh, how we kind of got to where we currently are, how the gospel interacts with that subject, and then ultimately what the church should do. We're following that same pattern with every topic that, that is in this section of uh, this series. Last week, we dealt with race and racism, looking really in those same four uh, categories. Today is uh, a little bit easier. This is not going to be as touchy of a subject um, however, it very well may be more challenging to us than the others. Depends on where you are in life and in your own spiritual development. Um, and what your own, if we go back to kind of the first half of this, uh, this semester, what your own lenses are, um, because you may have had that life as precious lens your entire life. You, you, you may have you know, rejected the idea of, of racism uh, early. And, and you may not have those lenses, but this is one that's probably going to be uh, a little more personal for a lot of us simply because um, this is a subject that has eaten up our culture. And the subject tonight is wealth and materialism. So we're going to talk about money tonight. And um, money is an issue for uh, all of us, I think, um, that we could use some pruning. Uh, I think money is, uh, is an, and not just the love of money, right? That's an easy place to go. Like we could always just go and say, you know, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's true. It's scripture. Um, but the love of money is, is a pretty broad idea. And in truth, that, that draw towards um, uh, thinking about wealth and money in the world's way 
manifests itself in a lot of different ways in our lives. So you may look at someone else and think, well, that person really loves money and they should repent of that and not you know, act like that way anymore. Uh, when you're just as guilty of it, you just love money differently than they do. Uh, and so I, I, we're going to think about money and wealth um, tonight, for, hopefully from a biblical uh, point of view, thinking about what the gospel says, uh, and then ultimately how the church should act uh, towards people with money and people without it, and, and kind of everything in between. Over the last two weeks, I've given sort of a, a uh, I've began with a historic progression a Western history, at least, progression, and more of a modern one from maybe the early 20th century, the last uh, 7,500 years or so as it related to life, uh, the subject of life and abortion and the subject of race and racism, and we kind of seen how we got to where we are today. That's a little more difficult to do um, with, with materialism, because that really is the defining characteristic of uh, American approach, our cultural approach to, uh, to wealth is certainly a materialistic approach. Uh, it's a little bit harder to do because it goes back further than just uh, modernity. Uh, it, has, it has multiple influences. So this is going to be, this historical section is going to be somewhat uh, brief uh, compared to the other two, but it's also going to be somewhat more philosophical in nature than it is going to be, you know, calling out the 1950s and what happened then in the 1960s and 70s uh, and so on like we did in, in previous weeks. But philosophically, really what you need to go to think of, if, if you're going to think about how we got to being a culture that is just dedicated towards uh, and inundated with uh, materialism, uh, you have to go back to the Enlightenment, right? The European and Western civilization Enlightenment, um, the philosophical thinkers of those days that really began to shift the focus of uh, humanity away from the divine and towards humanism. And this is really, and, and you, you can't really pin the Enlightenment and the progression of, um, of thought from, uh, from divine towards uh, the temporal and towards humanism on one person, one thinker, or even one area. It happened, obviously, in Europe, as so many things have, uh, before it happened in the United States. But it eventually caught up in the United States. And naturalism and humanism really became uh, the dominant academic thought um, long before the 20th century got here. For most of American history, you could really argue all of American history outside of some peaks around Great Awakenings, the dominant worldview of the United States has been uh, humanist, that, that the focus should be on the natural, on the temporal, on on. Uh, what we can see and what we can experience instead of um, the eternal, instead of the divine, instead of, you know, what God would want us to do. So the, the enlightenment really challenged in a lot of ways, uh, really primarily challenged the church and the teachings of the church. That was 
the goal was to, to shift cultural thinking um, towards a more humanistic way of, uh, and a more naturalistic way uh, of uh, approaching our relationships with one another and our relationships with uh, our surroundings and even thinking about uh, money. We also experienced over the course of time what was known as the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the Industrial Revolution gave, gave rise to wealth creation beyond just the ruling class. For most of human history, I mean, we're talking millennia of human history, wealth was, was concentrated uh, in very, very few people. There, there, the middle class as we know it, and, and the middle class, if you read you know, modern financial ideas, the middle class is dwindling. It's shrunk since uh, over the last 50 to 60 years. Uh, but the, even the idea of a middle class is new in human history. For most of human history, you had poor people, which was pretty much everybody, and then you had rich people, which was very, very few. Now, that's not to say you didn't have people in between or that you didn't have any kind of uh, socioeconomic strati within that lump of poor people. But in the main, you had poor people, uh, which was most everybody, and then you had everybody else. This showed up in economic systems like feudalism, for instance, right, where the the uh, the means of production were controlled by uh, landowners and everybody else kind of answered to those, uh, to those people. There were some, there were some um, uh, societies and cultures that would rise and fall uh, where the beginnings of ideas uh, that would have been something like our middle class uh, did begin to show up. One of those would have been uh, Rome. The first century Romans uh, had developed uh, a working class, at least, that, uh, that had some economic independence. And so the Bible, not being written in a vacuum, but being written, particularly the New Testament, being written within first century uh, Roman culture, uh, had understood that there were people that weren't you know, dirt poor, uh, but also weren't super rich. But it still didn't exist like it does today, where the majority of people within the culture have some means. Um, they're not super wealthy, at least uh, relativistically within the culture, uh, but they're, they're also not all the way poor. So these two factors, right, humanism and the Industrial Revolution, um, played a large role in the Western idea within modernity of keeping up with the Joneses, that I now have the means, I have some economic freedom, uh, I have the ability to buy things other than staple essentials, which is still where many people in the world find themselves, which is why I'm teaching on this subject in the midst of worldview, because all of this is relative. Um, poverty, wealth is, is really relative towards culture and society. So what, what counts for poor in Suffolk, Virginia, may be different from what counts as poor even in other parts of America. I believe if, if what counts for poor, particularly in, let's say, a five-mile radius of, of this um, building, 
would be different than what may count as poor in some rural areas of West Virginia or Kentucky, right? And what counts for, for, for poor there would be different for, from what is poor in, let's say, the uh, mountainous area of Central America. And what's poor there may be different from what's poor in the bush of West Africa, right? So um, the, the idea of wealth and um, rich and poor is certainly dependent upon one's own perspective. And so we have to think about this from the place where God has put us. God has put us in 21st century America uh, with a church that's in a middle to, you could argue, upper middle class uh, community in the main, and that we have to think about that in the context that we find ourselves, and that's not to say that everybody in this room watching this now or that comes to our church would fit in either one of those categories, because there's certainly people that, that would not consider themselves either middle or upper middle class, but that's our main surrounding area here in the northern part of Suffolk and this part of, of, um, of uh, Hampton Roads. But those, but again, get back, get back to this idea. What we saw post-World War II uh, was uh, a surge of materialism where people for the first time kind of in history had m more than they needed. And coming out of the Depression, right, we had, we had more than we needed. And so it, it created um, a competition of sorts between neighbors and neighborhoods and families and cities and places where, where people wanted to be seen as having um, nice things. And so it, it led to building bigger and better homes, buying bigger and better cars, uh, taking bigger and better vacations, uh, dressing in bigger and better ways. People used to, I mean, think just for the majority of, of human history, most people never considered anything like that. They had the small little place they lived, probably never traveled um, anywhere more than about 20 miles away from that place their entire lives, all right? They, they lived for their entire lives within a stone throw of the place they were born. They worked primarily for food. Either they raised food or they practiced some type of trade that they could then buy food that other people grew. And then at the end of the day, the money was gone. You sought to feed yourself for that day. And there are still people, millions of people, that live that way around our world today. But that was primarily how most people lived. It's, it's a newer idea that I've got money left over at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month. And so that created within our culture this, this competition mentality, which drove materialism, that now I want to have more because it, the stuff that we have has become, has, has become what defines us. So we're now, as a society, defined by the kind of car we drive, the neighborhood that we live in, the kind of clothes that we wear, the places that we've been, the places that we're planning to go. All of those things have become, societally at least, what has defined us for most of the 20th and, 20th and 21st centuries. Then, playing off of this rise of materialism was companies began to realize we can profit greatly from this. 
And so mass marketing and then now even targeted marketing is designed to get you to think you are lesser than if you don't have something. Millions, if not billions of dollars, I don't know the number, I didn't look it up, is spent every year in our society to convince you that you would be better off if you had something. You'd be better off if you had this car, you'd be better off if you wore these clothes, you'd be better off if you went to this place, you'd be better off if you had this appliance, right? That, that these things that we know from a biblical perspective will not change your life, right? They just, they're not, it's not going to change your life. You know, if you're, if you're cooking on a four burner stove that's 15 years old or some high-end fancy stainless steel model, um, you know, with all the bells and whistles, this is really not going to change your life. Maybe make cooking a little bit easier, but it doesn't change who you are as a person. And we know that to be true. And everybody in this room would, would affirm that like readily. Yes, we're not defined by those things. But that's not the way that our world thinks. That's not the way that our culture, the American culture, uh, has given itself over to the idea that the stuff around us defines us. And what's happened is we've snowballed to the point where uh, it, it's just this self-perpetuating idea that you got to have the new and greatest thing. And so the companies that want to sell you the newest, greatest thing um, have to convince you year after year that that one that you bought last year is no longer any good. Um, you could make an argument that's why they build things that don't last anymore, right? That's why the battery in your phone starts dying two years after it, after you bought it, right? Because they, they want to sell you a new and better one. Um, and, and it's just snowball. So this is where we are. Let's just admit where we are. We are in a um, wealth and materialistically consumed culture. The most wealthy culture to ever live on the face of the planet and the most materialistic. I can remember going um, to Romania. How long ago was it we went to Romania? It was a long time ago. 20, it was over a decade ago. Um, and spending some time there in Romania, if you're not, you know where that is on the map. It's in Europe. It's in Eastern Europe. It was part of the, it was in the Soviet bloc. Um, and uh, we were working with a church that was, was there that had a younger pastor, a guy that's about my age. Um, and, uh, but his father had pastored there during Soviet rule and, and we were able to interact with both of them. And, uh, and we asked like, what, you know, what's kind of the biggest change that's not been good. There's obviously some great changes that happened, right? Freedom of worship. There's, you know, the, actually they, that guy now, we were working with this church and it was really small. It's now, I think one of the largest evangelical churches in Romania. I mean, it, it's just blood. They've seen Hundreds and hundreds of people saved. That's all phenomenal and great. But the older pastor, right, who had pastored there for, for decades, spoke up and he said, um, with Western freedom came Western materialism. And our people are now so much more consumed with stuff than they ever were because they didn't have anything, right? <laughs> Under Soviet rule, it was communist. They didn't have anything, right? You were lucky to have bread at the end of the day. So you didn't even think about having that other stuff. And that was his one lament. It was his biggest lament, at least, was that this is, this is, what, this is what Western freedom brought, right? So, so with all the good that we could 
you know, write on a board and say, here's all the good things that capitalism has done. And this isn't a talk in favor of or against capitalism. But we have to, as the church, recognize that there is some great dangers in over-promotion of wealth and materialistic ideals that have so inundated our culture that here's, here's where we are now. We don't even recognize it. You, I would say most Christians, and I put myself in this category, don't even think twice um, because it's just become so ingrained in who we are. And I think we've even excused it as, well, capitalism you know, has been a net positive for the world and, and, and has raised people out of poverty and has helped so many places that, that we've just excused what it has done to our souls as it relates to uh, material possessions, right? So that's how, where we are. I talked a little more there than I intended to. Um, so let's see what the Bible says. The Bible's teaching concerning wealth and materialism. I think we have to first address uh, what is often the elephant in the room when you're dealing with wealth um, and you want to talk about what the Bible has to say about it, uh, in that there were some very, very rich people in the Bible, right? In this series in Genesis that we're in right now, um, Abraham, Isaac, and we'll eventually see with, with Jacob, right? Th- these, are, these, these are wealthy people. God blessed, we saw it already with both Abraham and Isaac, that because of their faithfulness to God, God just poured out material blessings on them. Now, um, that a couple of generations from Abraham and Isaac, uh, the, the people of God end up in a foreign land. Generations after that, they become slaves, right? So you really see this high and low. Uh, Post-Exodus, though, we get some of the wealthiest people with, with uh, David and then ultimately Solomon that you will ever see in, you know, in, in the Old Testament. I mean, Solomon, by many accounts, is one of the wealthiest people to ever live, certainly the wealthiest king to ever live uh, in, um, in Israel. You have, you have Job who, both, who builds wealth, loses it, and builds it all back. I mean, great wealth. And these people are not condemned for their wealth. Actually, contrary their wealth is seen uh, at, particularly in early stages of narrative of the Old Testament, as one of the signs of God's favor. And so I call it the elephant in the room because we're going to address positives and negatives about wealth, but we all need to recognize that, that wealth is not necessarily always a sign of God's favor. That there are people who are favored of God that can't rub two cents together. And they're doing exactly what God wants them to do in this world. And there are wealthy people in this world. I mean, like crazy wealthy. Have you even seen just like in the last year since the pandemic, the increase in wealth in the top, you know, not just the top 1%, but like that top 0.01, those 10, 15, 20 wealthiest people in the world, like their wealth has doubled or even tripled some of them. And they were already, you know, had more money than they could spend in generations. Um, there, we don't need to ascribe some type of favor of God to those people based off of some Old Testament structure that we put in place. We say, well, Abraham was wealthy, David was wealthy, Solomon was wealthy, and so... 
these people in my society, and they were favored by God, so these people in my society must also be favored by God because they're wealthy too. By the way, that's exactly what the Jewish people did in the first century. They saw wealthy people as being favored by God and poor people as not being favored by God. And it's why Jesus talks more about money than just about any other subject in the recorded gospels. It was because he was, he was challenging over and over. We're going to see a couple of those places. Challenging over and over the idea that wealth equals favor. But it would be dismissive of us to say that, it doesn't, that it's not sometimes the case, at least within the scriptures. It is sometimes the case. But in the main, what we see in the scriptures is that wealth is not a sign of favor, but it is a useful instrument for kingdom purposes. That this is what godly people are supposed to do with whatever God entrusts them. Whether that wealth is, is you know, minuscule or it is massive, that there is an expectation that Godly people, obedient people would leverage whatever God has entrusted to them, leverage that wealth, not for their own purposes, but for God's. So this is a direct assault on the humanistic materialism of our day. Remember, humanism is what led to materialism. The focus on self, hedonism, pleasure, Stuff, things, right? That focus is what, le- is what got us where we are today. And the Bible flips that on its end and says your wealth is not for, even if you've been entrusted with great wealth. That's not a bad thing. The Bible doesn't paint it as a bad thing for you to have a lot of money. And so one of the, one of the temptations within the church sometimes is to demonize rich people. And make rich people seem like they've somehow done something wrong because they happen to uh, inherit wealth, work hard, make wealth, you know, find a suitcase on the side of the road. I don't know how they got it, um, but however it is, we're not supposed to demonize them either. It's, wealth is supposed to be seen, whether it's minuscule or massive, as instruments for God's purpose. So there are wise ways and foolish ways then for us to deal with our wealth. And wealth for you, by the way, I keep using that word uh, because I think it's the best word to use here. Um, but you may not think of yourself as wealthy. But in this context, if you have anything, then this is directed at you, right? So if your savings account has, you know, 50 bucks in it, th- this is directed to you. Um, I would imagine most people in this room have more than that in their, you know, in, in their net worth, and, um, and, and it's equally applicable, all right? So there's, there's wise ways for us to uh, deal, with, deal with wealth. And then there's either foolish, I'm going to use the term greedy here in a minute. So let's, let's just look at some Bible passages. First, wise wealth is always wisely generous. Wise wealth is always wisely generous. Now that word wise shows up there twice. Number one, because this is categorized as wise wealth. That's this section. Um, but I, I use the term wisely generous because not all generosity is equally wise. For instance, I'm going to use a lot of Proverbs here because Proverbs talks a ton about wealth and uh, in, in some really clear ways for us to understand. In Proverbs 6, we're warned this. My son, this is verse 1 and 2 of Proverbs 6, my, or 1 through 5. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and have given your pledge for a stranger... 
If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. If you have come into the hands of your neighbor, go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eye no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Then you say, what would be wrong about putting security up? What's happened is this guy, he's warning him about co-signing loans, right? That's the, that's the warning here. And so you, you may think, well, that's, that's a form of generosity, isn't it? No, because if somebody can't sign that loan on their own, they probably don't need to have that thing they're signing the loan for, right? So they're making a foolish choice, and you're coming right alongside of them, helping them to make that foolish choice, and the writer of the Proverbs says, that is foolish generosity. So there is such a thing as helping that hurts. There's actually a book called When Helping Hurts. And it's like required reading for anybody that goes on the mission field. If you, if, if, if you would like to read it, it, would, it would, it's really helpful to think about how we as Americans just always instinctively want to throw money at every problem, Right? And there's a lot of problems that actually throwing money at makes a whole lot worse. So just give you a quick example. In Africa, um, ownership's really important. And so who owns something is who maintains something. So when um, UNICEF, or the UN, or Red Cross, or whoever, sweeps into a village and digs a well, everybody in the village will use that well. But that well belongs to whoever dug it in their minds, right? And so when a little piece on that well breaks and Red Cross is gone, do you know that nobody ever goes and fixes it? This is true. There are broken down wells by the thousands in Africa because it doesn't belong to anybody, right? So the better thing to do is actually help a community, help a village, help a town, help somebody raise the money together, dig the well together. Why? Because then when it breaks, they have ownership. They learn to fix it. That's a general principle of, of something you'd find in, in that book. But it's also the, this same idea. Like there are times that throwing money at a situation is not the wise thing. So we want to be wise in our generosity. So what does wise generosity look like? Well, first, it's, it's a call to being generous no matter how much wealth you actually have. In Proverbs 6, we read, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. He doesn't define wealth here. He just says, honor the Lord with it. So if all you've got is a little, you need to honor the Lord with the little. If you, if you have a lot, you need to honor the Lord with a lot. Likely, most of the audience that's watching and listening from a world point of view, have a lot. Well, I mean, middle-class Americans have far more than most people around the world. Um, if, uh, if, if, if you have enough money in the bank right now to handle a $1,000 emergency, you're better off than half of Americans, and you're better off than over 90% of the rest of the world, okay? Um, so from a world's point of view, we're, most of us in here are wealthy. From a cultural point of view, it, the, the stratus on that economic ladder kind of spans out a little bit. But wherever you are on it, wise generosity is, is being willing to be generous with your money regardless of how much of it you have. 
and in proportion to what you have, right? And with your first fruits of all your produce. So first fruits for somebody that has very little and is making very little is going to be a little. First fruits from somebody that has a lot and is making a lot is going to then be a lot. So we want to practice wise generosity that regardless of who we are, regardless of what our uh, economic status currently is, we want to practice some level of generosity uh, giving unto the Lord. Wise wealth is always within one's means, though. We're always going to live trusting the Lord and not getting overextended. The majority of Americans spend, it's something like, I should have looked this one up, and I don't know what it is right now. Pandemic may have changed it. But it was something like the majority of American families spend 103% of what they make in a given year. Now, I don't know how you spend 103% of something. Um, well, I do, actually. It's called credit cards, right? Well, that's what the majority of Americans do. Um, but the Bible's clear on this, Proverbs 22, 7, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. Now, th- this isn't going to be a long talk on the dangers of debt and credit cards and, and that sort of thing. But I will say, um, and, and if you were here when I preached through the Proverbs, I said this multiple times, Proverbs is... A, is is temporal principles with eternal promises, okay? And so we don't need to read this as a command to never borrow money, but it should be a stark warning to you the next time you go to do it. It should mean that we're asking questions of, can I really pay this back? Do I, re- do I really need what I'm about to borrow money for? Is this a wise financial investment? Now, when we teach financial classes here at the church, basically what we say is, the only financial investment that it makes any sense to borrow money for is something that's going to appreciate. And really the only thing that appreciates from a personal standpoint is a home, right? Cars don't appreciate, vacations don't appreciate, furniture doesn't appreciate, right? And, and so, but even then, they, there are some, and you, so you could walk out of here and say, well, the preacher said it's all right to have a home loan, and you could go get into a home loan that's far beyond what you ought to get into. And a lot of people did called the financial crisis of 2009. Remember? A lot of people bought houses they couldn't afford and everything in the early 2000s and everything came crashing down in 09. And so we want to be, we want to be really careful. Anytime we're borrowing something, we want to make sure we can pay it back. We want to make sure it's within our means. So to, to think about our wealth in a wise way is, is to be realistic with what kind of money we actually have. That would also apply to things like, you know, actually having a budget knowing what you spend. Um, I am amazed when I sit down with couples and we start talking about what's happening in their lives and, and money comes up. And I say, okay, well, who, who tracks your money? What do you mean who tracks the money? I'm like, well, who, who keeps up with what you spend on groceries or on you know, clothes or on debt? Or who can, well, I don't know. We just always make sure we have money in the account. Oh, if you don't, if you're not insuring your living within your means, unless you're super rich, you're not living within your means. Number three, wise wealth is always gained honestly. Proverbs twelve eleven: Whoever works with his, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuit lacks sense. Proverbs thirteen eleven: Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gains little by little will increase it. Look, there's not you know get rich quick schemes is not. The, the godly way of accumulating um, wealth in this world. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't, that you can't invest, right? Doesn't mean that 
you shouldn't buy stock or whatever, whatever you want to buy. But look, it, our, our goal, the end goal isn't get rich, right? And that's not the end goal. The, um, the end goal is provision. And so we want to be people who work. I think people with wise wealth are people who work. So then what's greedy wealth? Because the Bible talks about greed as well. Greedy wealth is wealth that is hoarded. Proverbs 11, 24, one gives freely, it grows all the richer. So that's wise wealth, right? Another withholds what he should gives and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him uh, who hold back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Um, um, when we talk about greed, it's, an, it's important to recognize something that, that sometimes we, we will develop a, a wrong understanding. Greed, and I use the word hoard there, and I use that word a lot when I'm talking about our church finances. I say regularly, our church does not hoard money, right? Um, that doesn't mean that it's not wise to save money. There's a difference between hoarding and saving, Right? And, and there may be a fine line, and sometimes you may have to ask, it, which one of these things am I doing, right? Uh, to spend every penny that ever comes in your house and never to set something aside, and to never set something aside for a rainy day is not wise. Um, to spend every dime that comes into your house and not think about the fact that you're going to grow old and not be able to work one day is not wise, um, I actually was, was talking to a young pastor not very long ago, and he was saying, what are some, some things that I could do early in ministry to kind of build some, make sure I build in success? And he was really shocked by one of my answers. And one of my answers was, make sure you save for your retirement. And he said, he's in his 20s. And he's like, why, why is that important? I said, because one day you're not going to be able to do this job anymore. And you're going to be faced with a choice. If you didn't save for your retirement, you're going to need to stay in a position longer than you need to and hold on because this is your source of income and this is the only skill you have. It's the only thing you can do, right? So I think there's, look, there's wisdom in having a retirement account. There's wisdom in having emergency funds. There's wisdom in saving for things. But that's different than hoarding. Hoarding is treasuring that that you've set aside, that God has given you for the use of his kingdom, but you're not willing to do it. It's the opposite of generosity, right? It's being stingy, saying, I'm not going to give so that, you know, we can share, share the gospel around the world, or I'm not going to give to the poor, or I'm not going to give to what God's doing in our church, or I'm not going to help a friend or neighbor in need. I'm not going to do that because, you know, I've got my little number over here, and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, we become Scrooge McDuck with our big mansion and, you know, filled with gold and we just want to go swim in it. For those that, you know, came up in the 90s watching that cartoon that I did, it made, it made sense to a certain generation in this room. That made sense. To others of you, it didn't at all. Um, but that's, that's, that's the difference. That's hoarding versus, you know, saving. There's, there's wisdom there in that, in that fine line. Number two, greedy wealth fails to recognize the source of our provision. Now we go to, to one of the places where Jesus addresses wealth in Matthew 6, and he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father 
your heavenly father knows that you need them all. You, you haven't earned any of the stuff that you have in this life. And that's another, <laughs> that's another side product of uh, American culture. America is, a Western culture is, is more individualistic um, and than any other culture probably in our world, maybe in the history of our world. And in that, we've, we've really, it's really damaging to the church when we start talking about making disciples and that sort of thing. And so I'll, I'll mention this sometimes when I'm preaching on that subject. So you, some of you have been here a while, you've heard me talk about this before. But that American individualism can be so dangerous when it relates to materialism and wealth because here's what we think. Well, I earned it, right? I went to school, I got this degree, I went, learned this trade, I've worked really hard, I built this business, I rose to the top. This is mine. But that's, a, that's a false understanding from a biblical perspective, isn't it? What did we learn weeks ago when we were, to, when we were introducing the idea of the worldview? And that is some of the ba- one of the basic principles of a Christian worldview is that everything in creation belongs to God, including the stuff that has your name written on it, right? That, that house, you know, the deed to that house and the title of that car um, may have your name on it, but it doesn't belong to you ultimately. It belongs to the Lord. And so greedy wealth fails to recognize that. It thinks I've, I've got it all for myself. I've, I have amassed this, and so because I've amassed it, I can do with it whatever, whatever I want. Number three, greedy wealth always wants more. James writes in James 4, 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. He's relating this to to Christian dependence upon God, but he's presenting a a stark truth for the people uh, that that he's writing to here in in the church, and that is, that they're willing to go so far as to even murder. Now, were they actually murdering? I don't know. Um, but Jesus has said, if you have hate in your heart towards your brother, you've murdered him, right? And so maybe, maybe James is relying on that. But, but think that at the bare minimum of what's happening in the church that James is writing to is that greed has has found its way into the church to the point where it's caused division amongst the people. That relationships within the church are broken because somebody else has something that you want or that they wanted, right? And so he says, you, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. Like you're, it, 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 even, if this is, even if this isn't literal murder, which I don't know if it is or isn't, but even if it isn't a literal murder, we ought to at least be shocked to think that I'm going to hate a fellow brother or sister in Christ because I, they have something I don't have. And you know, my parents taught me this growing up. I imagine just about every one of your parents taught you this growing up. There's always going to be somebody that has more than you, right? Like there's always going to be, you know, unless you're Jeff Bezos, I guess, who's now the richest man in the world. I don't know. It kind of keeps fluctuating back and forth. You know, there's two or three of these guys in America, the richest people in the world. 
Uh, and you got to wonder, are they actually? You know, is there somebody else sitting on their private island somewhere that just hadn't told anybody what they have? Um, but unless you're one of those people, there's always going to be somebody else. Always going to be somebody else with more than you. Um, and so that, that basic principle like had broken down in that church to the point where relationships were broken over something as silly as greed and, and coveting. He said, you covet and kind of think, so you fight and you quarrel. Like, like there were actual arguments and fights within the church over who had what. Um, greedy wealth, always, greedy wealth never satisfied. And I think that's a good test for us. If, how, how dependent am I on um, the wealth that I'm creating that I've always got to have more? I've always got to figure out a way to, uh, you know, to get something else. Now that, again, we balance this. That doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard at your job. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, if, if the Lord provides a promotion and provides a raise or provides a new opportunity or gives you the chance to build a business or do something else, that doesn't mean any of those things are wrong. But what's the motivation behind it? Is the motivation greed? <laughs> is, is, is the motivation I want more so I can have more? Is the motivation I want more so can bless others and use it for the kingdom of God? So, so really, the Bible really paints in these broad stroke categories wealth that's good and, and useful for the kingdom, that's thought about in the right way, that's generous, and then wealth that's greedy and foolish and ultimately leads to division within, within the body and within the church that shows no trust for God, only trust in man. So then the gospel, how does the gospel re- relate to wealth? Well, I have, I have two things here. First, I think it must be noted that the wealthy cannot, uh, that wealth, not the wealthy, but wealth, cannot save. There is none of this that you're going to be able to take with you, right? You, I, you know, if you grew up in church and, you know, and ever, liked, ever had a preacher that liked telling those little preacher things, you know, uh, it's very common to hear preachers say, you'll, you know, you'll never see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. Because you can't take that stuff with you. I mean, they can bury it with you if, they, if you wanted them to, but you're not taking it with you. Wealth can't save. In Matthew 19, Jesus says to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Remember, first century Jews attributed wealth with favor of God, saying, Who then can be saved? Here's why they asked that. Well, if that guy can't, and he's rich, and he's rich because God has shown him favor, then how in the world can anybody be saved? And Jesus answers him, verse 26. He says, he looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's okay, what's really happening here? Jesus has challenged the preconceived notion that wealth equals favor with God, and so that the wealthy would be the ones saved, and the poor wouldn't, because the poor are poor because God's punishing them. That was the way they thought. Now that's wrong, but it's the way that they thought. So when Jesus says, that it is easier for a camel to go through than an eye of a needle, right? Which is, we would know, that's impossible. Okay? Um, a camel to go through an eye of a needle for, than for a rich person in the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus is saying. All that wealth is meaningless, spiritually speaking. That wealth isn't going to buy them anything. That wealth isn't a sign that they actually have anything, anything real, anything eternal. They may have amassed a lot of temporal stuff. 
And you got to remember, one out of a thousand may have been wealthy in his day. Just about everybody was working for one day, you know. I mean, he, Jesus got a bunch of fishermen here who had to fish every day or they wouldn't have had anything. They, at this point, they're living off of the kindness of strangers. There are places, there are times that Jesus says, Son of Man has no place to lay his head, right? They were sleeping. I mean, they were basically homeless for much of Jesus' ministry. He says, those, those rich people can't buy their, that's not going to buy them anything, right? So it's, it's important. No, wealth can't save. No, no amass of wealth, no, no, you know, none of that's going to buy it for you. All, but second, the saved cannot ignore the temporal and eternal needs around them. The scripture's teaching on wealth and how believers, followers, obedient followers of God are supposed to use wealth. The abundance of these teachings demand that we not ignore them. We shouldn't ignore any word of scripture, okay? So don't hear me say that we should ignore any word of scripture, but there are some subjects in the scriptures that just appear over and over and over and over and over again that, that demand we pay attention to. them. The fact that Jesus talks about money second only to the kingdom of God. The fact that there are more Proverbs about wealth than nearly any other subject. I mean, these are, you know, one of the, one of the probably top three things that the um, prophets, particularly the minor prophets discussed was the relationship between the wealthy and the poor. The scriptures deal with this subject over and over. So we cannot ignore it. It is, listen, it is a gospel issue. And that's why it's here. That's why I'm mentioning it here. It is a gospel issue. A saved person cannot ignore what is happening around them, both temporally, meaning the needs of others. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. That we must be willing to, and I'm going to talk a little more about this when we get to the section of the church, but we must be willing to do something about the needs of meeting the needs of others, but also the eternal needs that we see. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. To honor the Lord with your wealth is to recognize that there is something bigger going on than just your needs. Something bigger going on than, than us amount, amassing wealth. And, and uh, it, the scripture is so clear on this subject that it, it demands our attention. We, have to, we cannot ignore the needs of others and the, ultimately the needs of the kingdom of God. So then what should the church's actions be? I've got four. I've got 10 minutes left. I'm going to be able to get through it. The church's actions concerning wealth. Number one, the church must train Christians to be right-minded about wealth. Every time I, I get to a passage of scripture that talks about giving, and I've preached on giving numerous times in my almost six years of pastoring here, um, I always... I always um, but not always. I usually preface it, if, particularly if the whole sermon's going to revolve around some, uh, something like giving. I typically preface it in case there's new people and say, and, and talk just briefly about how we approach the scriptures here that I preach verse by verse the books of the Bible. Because some people will walk into a church and they hear a sermon on, on giving and they think, oh, that's all, that's all preachers ever want to talk about, right? Just lying in their own pockets. I, I can't tell you the number of times I have read accusations from people in our secular world accusing churches of being open during the pandemic because we needed to pass the offering plates. I, I, I mean, 
that, that accusation has been lobbed against the church for the last 11 months. Okay, and it's not going to stop. Because some people think the church talks way too much about money. Can I just tell you, I actually think the opposite is true. I don't think the church talks enough about it. I think Jesus talked so much about it on purpose. And I, I think the reason I don't think we talk enough about it, particularly the American church, is because this, this may be the greatest problem the American church faces, is our understanding of money and wealth and the accumulation of wealth and what we're supposed to be doing with it. We have, we have become so numb to the materialistic world around us that we've, we've become deceived. Mark Dever, pastor at Capitol Hill up in D.C., Capitol Hill Baptist in D.C., in a sermon on materialism about five years ago, says materialism is the stupid philosophy, his word, and I'm, stupid philosophy, where everything is invested in what will eventually become nothing. It's the stupid philosophy where everything is invested in what will eventually become nothing. We have got to train Christians. The church has got to do a better job of training Christians to invest in the eternal. We've got to, we, we, we've got to talk about it more. And so it's why we offer equipped classes on, on that subject. We try at least... Uh, you know, once every 18 months or so to offer a quick class that's going to be practical in helping people um, get out of debt, learn to make a budget, some of the things that maybe somebody should have taught you earlier in life, but they didn't. And hey, that's not your fault. So let's, let's help you. Um, it, it's why when I get to those kind of passages, I'm not going to shrink back from them. And it's why I included, of all the subjects I could have talked about tonight, it's why this subject is, is here. Um, because the, the church has got to train people to be right-minded about it. We've got to train our teenagers to be right-minded about it. Parents, if you've got kids in the home, you've got to teach them to be right-minded about money and the relationship with money. Um, I, I tell our oldest son uh, all the time, and we, we talk about giving, and we, you know, when he earns a little bunny, we, we talk about giving to the church and, and all of that. But I tell him, I mean, he's pretty smart. And I'm, you know, his mom and I talk to him about what he'll do when he grows up all the time and what he'd want to study. And I'm like, son, if God's not going to call you into ministry, which I don't think it could happen, but I don't know that that's going to be the, the path for my son. If God's not going to call you into ministry, I hope you go out and find a job. You make tons of money. Tons of money. Not, not so you'll be rich, but so that you can give generously to the kingdom of God. Now, the joke is, so you can give generously to the kingdom of God and buy your mom and dad a yacht when we retire. And uh, so he uses it. When I'm mean to him, he'll say, I'm not going to buy you that yacht. Um. That's in jest, though. The, the truth is, I mean, really, I, I, I hope, I mean, that, I hope God, if, if God sees fit, I hope God blesses people in this church tremendously. I'm not going to count that as a sign of favor or not, but I, I would pray, God, what, what a better, you know, what a better group of people. Bless, bless these people because I believe we as a church are going to use those resources wisely. If God chooses not to do that, I'm not going to think any less of God or any less of people, right? But we, we've got to have a right mind about wealth, that we're, gonna, we're, we're going to utilize it for the kingdom of God, not, um, not for ourselves. And it is, it's only through the church's teaching of the scripture, rightly teaching of the scripture, that we're going to get people there. So the church has got to teach people right. Number two, the, the church must demonstrate the wise use of wealth. I think our church, let me just talk about our church for a second. 
Our church is in a really unique moment um, in the history of our church because as far as I am aware, we right now have more money as a congregation than we've ever had. We are weeks away from being completely out of debt. We, are, we have, uh, because of where we ended the year and some, some incredible generosity, we have a lot of money as a congregation. And we're going to make some decisions as a congregation um, over the next, you know, nine months, probably, maybe longer, about how to do that. And this kind of piggybacks off that previous one. But if we're going to teach people how to be right-minded about money, then the church needs to demonstrate it, right? And so I think that that's important for us to, to remember that... Um, uh, you know, a church. I've, I've, we've watched it with churches, and listen, churches, other churches make whatever decisions they want to make. Um, but churches become flush with cash, and the next thing you know, they've bought everything in the world that they want to buy for themselves. I never thought anything about, you know, the gospel to the nations, or church planting, or community outreach, or helping people, and and uh, the mission of the church. And so that's been my challenge since we found out about just how much money we um, brought in last year was we've got we've to think, mission, make disciples that make disciples with this. We've got to be an eternal, uh, an eternal investment. We've got to demonstrate the wise use of wealth. Number three, the church must find ways to care for the poor. Jesus said in Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will live uh, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and drink? Stranger, welcome you, naked, clothe you. And when were you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer him, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now I say that here and you may automatically think, well, how does Namsman River do that? Namsman River has some ways that we do this. But do you know, when I say the church, I don't always mean the church organization. I'm also talking about the church, the people of God. And this is one of those places where I'm not sure that I'm not sure that we wouldn't necessarily ever have you know organized ministries within our church that do this beyond what we're already doing. But I do think it it stands for us to be challenged each of us individually and ask how am I actually doing these things? We don't need to depend on the church to have a ministry structure within I do these things. But how am I actually, how do I care for poor people and hungry people and thirsty people and, you know, people without clothing and people that are sick and people in prison? How am I personally doing in that? How are we collectively doing in that as we interact with those kind of people within, within our um, community? Number four, the church must not show favoritism based on wealth. James 2 says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes in your assembly and a poor man shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag in your court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? 
Um, it shouldn't matter what, and we, we said this last week as it related to the issue of race. We need to say it this week as it relates to uh, economic status. It, it shouldn't matter what a person looks like when they walk in this building, what they're wearing, maybe what they smell like. Um, it, it should not matter one bit. And that, that's on both ends of that extreme. Look, it's really easy. I stand by that front door every day, every Sunday morning. I, I can always tell guests, we always knew, you know, I always know if somebody's been here or not, you can just tell by look on their face. Um, a lot of times they'll park in guest parking, which really helps. Um, but, but you can kind of get an idea, unless somebody's putting on airs, right? You can kind of get an idea. You know what kind of car they drove up in, you know what kind of clothes they're wearing, you know how they kept themselves. I mean, that, that's kind of easy. It's kind of easy to peg somebody. You know, sometimes you'll get it wrong, but, but most of the time you'll get it right. And it'd be really easy for us to, to prioritize somebody that we think, oh, man, we get them, and that's going to be another X amount of money in the offering plate. Or to deprioritize somebody and think, this is not only somebody that, you know, that's going to take more than, than, than they give, but they may become a drain on us at some point. And, and James warns about that. And he says, don't, don't be those kind of people. Far too many American churches have given themselves over to that kind of materialism where we want to, and we would never admit that we're doing it, but we just kind of subconsciously do it. We've got to check ourselves on that make sure that there's no favoritism um, as it relates to wealth, that there's no favoritism related to anything else, right? Go back to last week's subject um, or anything else that, that, that could cause us to do that. So let me just wrap up, 731. I got to go. I got to be done. Wealth's not a bad thing. It can be dangerous. It, it can be deadly. There's a reason Jesus says, it's easier for a rich man to go through an eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of heaven. It can corrupt and rot our hearts to the point where um, the warning of John um, uh, that, that uh, the love of money becomes the root of all kinds of evil. Right? However, whatever it is that God has trusted you with is enough for you right now. And not only enough for you to put food on the table and for you to do for being provided in the way that he would see fit, but enough for you to be generous and to give and to show the love of God to people and invest in that which really matters and not that which is going to one day become nothing. This may be one of the most countercultural ways that we live in our society is to say, I'm not going to live in the way the world does as it relates to money. All right, let me pray for us to close. God, um, help us with this because we all, we're all, we all struggle at times over knowing, do I really need this? Is it okay for me to have this? What, how much is too much? What should I save? What should I give? Um, just help us to be wise, we pray. Help us to err on the side of generosity and, and showing people um, the love of Christ in, in ways that's tangible at times, and, but also investing in kingdom ministry locally, globally. Uh, let us be people, God, who don't put our faith in stuff. Don't, don't, don't let us be people who are defined by our stuff. Let us be people who put our faith and find our meaning and purpose in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us.